we're walking through the book of Mark. And if you got your Bibles, turn there. And I just want to make a statement here, too. If you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles actually in the front of our chairs there. You can, you can grab that and take that home with you if you don't have one. That's more than fine. We can replace them. So uh, just take note of that. But let's begin by reading this morning. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there. And he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did the, uh, this man get these things, he asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is without honor except in his own home, his hometown, among his relatives in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, <clears throat> shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and he healed them. Some of you have been out of school for a lengthy period of time. And have you ever gone to maybe a gathering where there's your school buddies or maybe a class reunion where you go back there and you know that you have changed, but people look at you and they want to talk to you like it's the past. Their lenses really are the past in terms of interpreting who you are. I remember last summer I went to back to my church that I was growing up in, and, and the superintendent of the schools that when I was going to Dassel Cato, he attends that church, and, and he came up to me and he goes, Kenny. <laughs> now, I'm not particularly fond of the word Kenny, okay? So if some of you start calling me that, I'll make up a name for you um, on that, but uh, I'm not sure you were supposed to correct a superintendent either at that point, so I, I didn't do it, but... But think about this. Maybe some of you grew up in Grand Rapids here. You moved away for a while, you come back, and, and people look at you differently through a different lens. Or they, you know, they kind of assume that you're the same old person. Well, understand, that's the picture of Jesus in this text. He's left for a while, and he's come back. He's come back. He, he's come to the town of Nazareth. Now, he's come from Capernaum. Let me just put a quick map up here, just so you get the context here. That blue, I kind of colored that in as the Sea of Galilee. And, and Capernaum, which is on the northwest corner of that upper arrow, that's where a lot of activity has taken place. That's where his disciples came out of. That was where they kind of did their fishing out of. That, that was there. But he walks about, they walk about 25 miles southwest to Nazareth, and that's the story where we really pick up today. 
So he comes home. I assume he's there to visit his mom as well, Mary. But he walks in with his band of disciples, and I think if he would have done it today, he would have been on a motorcycle, don't you think? And, uh, and, and a bunch of vests and a little name on the back of that. But he comes home, and it's pretty obvious that they know who Jesus is. Uh, th- by the way, a small community. This would have been uh, smaller than Hill City, somewhere in the, they believe about four to 500 people at this point. So he comes, he arrives home, Saturday comes around, and he marches off to the synagogue, and this would have been the only synagogue, the only church in the village, and he stands up and begins to preach, and just a reminder that any male in that context could stand up and begin, begin to share about some kind of truth that they had learned or the scriptures in some way. So he stands up, and things begin to flow out of his mouth, And all of a sudden, these people that know him, their mouths drop open and go, who is this guy? He's changed. But look at verse 2. Many were amazed. Now, here's what we want to do today. I'm just going to walk through this text and take a number of observations and applications here. And the first one, in light of that, Number one there, if you're following along in the outline, these people, they were offended by Jesus. They were offended. Look how it reads, the end of verse 2. Look at the questions that they were, I assume he could hear these. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And look at that phrase, and they took offense at him. See, words are coming out of his mouth, and something has changed. This is no happy-go-lucky reunion here. And undoubtedly, they had heard about his miracles, but he begins to teach. Now, it doesn't tell exactly what he was teaching on, but they took offense to what he was saying. And and understand, they knew Jesus well. They had known this man. This wasn't a new guy. He had grown up in this village. They had known him as a young man. They had made observations about him. Matter of fact, I think growing up, I, I think he was the really nice, sweet boy. I'm assuming that just because of Jesus. And I think people would have looked at Jesus growing up, becoming this this man and going, boy, I should hope my daughter marries somebody like this man. See, there would have been respect there, but all of a sudden there's a switch here coming back. He's different. And he begins to teach and outflows incredible knowledge. I assume in a deep ability to communicate the Old Testament. And he wasn't trained. They knew that. There was no seminary, no Bible college. He was a carpenter. Not trained like a teacher, but words of wisdom just come out of his mouth. And I suspect that there was words of rebuke because that would have been the message of Jesus. There was, a, I think, a call for repentance, expounding on the kingdom of God. That would have been the teaching that would, have, that would over and over again that would have come from Jesus at the other settings. But this man was different now. But she also, I got to point out a phrase in here. Did you notice that they used in this text, he was Mary's son? Now, tradition has it that Joseph 
actually was gone out of the scene at this point. Many believe that he had died by this point. But in Jewish circles, regardless of whether a father had died, it was custom to refer to him as somebody's, the father's son. They should have referred to him as Joseph's son. That was the respectful way to do it. But by using the word Mary's son, what they're doing is they're throwing doubt as who the father really was. It was a type of slur of the legitimacy of his birth. I think they were angry at him. Because we can assume in a village that small that there was gossip that had gone around surrounding his birth years earlier. But and that you know, they're just thinking maybe Joseph did the honorable thing and just married Mary. But you notice in that Mark records as well his brothers there, four, bro- four half-brothers, sisters. But, but it's obvious as, he, as he's standing and his family would have been there, people in this community would have been there, and he's seen their body language. Or maybe they're whispering to each other, Who's this? What's, what's happened to Jesus? See, something has gone on. He's changed. They don't like what's coming out of his mouth. And Jesus responds. Look at how he responds in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. See, I, I can't help but wonder if he gets up there. They were looking for magical tricks, healings, when they mention healings here. But they give him no honor. They, they give him no credibility. There was only this boy that was so nice a long time ago. Now there's disappointment and even resentment. And his response, a principle really that's true today, number two for your notes, it's often hard for family and friends to see spiritual changes in one's life. It's almost a proverb here, a general truth. See, a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown with his own family. And I think people saw the change in his life. But I think that's also might be true of some of you here. I've heard lots of stories over the years where somebody comes to Christ in a family where they don't know Christ. And all of a sudden, there's this reaction of going... We're not going to give you, that's not an honorable thing that you're giving your life to Christ. They're viewing it as antagonism, something against it. And and so that principle might apply even to you and your life even right now. This town should have been honoring him, and they did not. But there's another observation as well here. Number three, Jesus was amazed by their unbelief. The phrasing there, he was amazed by their lack of faith. See, Mark goes on to make a a comment that Jesus was unable to perform the miracles in the town except for just a few healings. And folks, this wasn't a lack of power. Jesus still had power to heal if he wanted to. But why why didn't he heal? It was because of their unbelief. And I think there's a a piece here for us to recognize that unbelief really has the power to rob us of great blessings from God. Unbelief has the power to rob us of time, of things where God wants to do in our lives, 
and yet we don't cooperate with God. We don't respond to him, and he, choose, but, and he chooses not to force those things and those blessings on our lives. But I think there's a second part of this, as he was re- surprised by their unbelief. And do you realize the irony here coming from Capernaum just a few, maybe a day or a few days earlier? In Capernaum, a woman comes up who's had an issue with bleeding for 11 years, was it? And she touches the faith for her. She touches his garment and she's healed. A leader of the synagogue comes and brings Jesus home. And in faith, because of his faith, Jesus heals and raises his daughter from death to life gives her life. A man filled with demons, obviously looking, believing that Jesus could heal him, and legions of demons are thrown out of a man. But here in Nazareth, no faith. No faith. But there's a critical point and an observation here because of that. Look at number four. Jesus moved on in his ministry because of their unbelief. I want to put up the rest of verse 6. Understand what's just happened. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. What did he do? He left. He turned and he walked out of Nazareth. That was going to be the last time he would ever teach in his hometown. But what's he doing? He's literally letting go. And he's turning his back on the community that he grew up with. Now, did all of them have hard hearts? Obviously, Mary, no. Brother James, no. But I think that there's a truth that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Because of hard hearts, sometimes Jesus moves on. The Holy Spirit moves on. See, people choose to not respond to Christ, and Jesus begins to withdraw opportunity to respond. And we don't really like that idea. But remember back in chapter 3, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus warns them. He says, guys, there's time coming when there's going to be a line when your belief is going to keep you and there will be no more opportunity for you to respond to Christ. But we don't like that idea, I think, that Jesus might draw a line in the sand at times and, and walk away from people with hard hearts. Now, I, I hope in, in this audience here today that there aren't some of you don't have hard hearts and they're getting harder and, and it would be a warning to you in that sense. But I want to show you, just drill down just a little bit more in this concept. I want to show you Romans chapter 1. This is a very difficult text in the sense where we struggle with it. 121, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And verse 24 here, a a challenging verse. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Gave them over. What does that mean? 
And even farther here, it doesn't mean that God just steps back. I remember this concept, I was teaching this to a college group years, about 25 years ago, and it just kind of stunned me. And that phrase, gave them over, is like bowling. It's like pushing the ball down the lane. That he pushes people to a point where they go, it's actually an intensification of their own sin. And we go, oh, God would do that? But here's one piece I've got to remind you theologically. They love their sin. They have no problem with it. Even when you think, though, the soils of the heart, that parable there is that some people's hearts are like stone. You throw the gospel on it, nothing can grow. You, it's like cement. Nothing will take root. The heart is hard. Now, our, our goal isn't necessarily to figure out whose hearts are hard in that context, but, and so we keep sharing the gospel, but we have to acknowledge that there's places where people's hearts become harder and harder and harder. And that was taking place in his hometown, in Nazareth. He leaves. And then he begins to train his disciples. He turns his back on Nazareth. And I want to show you another verse here later on in the text. In verse, look at verse 11. This applies to this, what we've been talking about. And if any, if any place will not welcome you, there's instructions to disciples that if they don't welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, does God still love these people that they're trying to share the gospel, the kingdom with? And you go, yes, profoundly. But Jesus is essentially telling the disciples, don't waste your time and energy on these people. And you go, oh, what if they're a family member? What do you do with that? Now, I'm going to give a reality as well. God can break through anytime, even with the hardest heart. It really is in his court. It's in God's control. And I even think one of the exceptions, as I was pondering this, one of the exceptions in Scripture is Paul. Paul had an incredibly hard heart toward the believers. And you remember, God had to force his way. He had to break his heart, make it soft. Paul, why are you persecuting me? So that God can work. And we, we have to be thankful that God is the one in control. But folks, something is happening here with Jesus and his disciples. They walk out of Nazareth and he goes, guys, we're going to kick into training mode again. And that's what begins to take place. Look at, look, keep going in the text. Look at verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not even an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Here's my observation for your notes, number five. Jesus was intentional in his training of these men, these disciples. He didn't tell the guys, oh, by the way, here's an option for you. If you want to be my disciples, here's one of the things you could do. It's an elective. He goes, no, the the very strong word, he sent them out. This was hardcore training. 
Now, now here's where I, I got to talk about this issue and surrounding the church, and especially in the United States. And I, I want to express it really through a video clip. The, the clip is um, a, it's from the Seven Laws of the Teacher. Some of you maybe have uh, heard that. Uh, uh, I looked at the videos from Howard Hendricks. Um, Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Seminary years ago. I think he's passed away. He taught within his 80s. I, I had the privilege of hearing him at a conference. Just a, a great guy. He loved God. He loved people. But one of his deepest desires is that the church would be effective in making disciples. And he was the Christian edu education guru there at Dallas Seminary. And uh, now the clip, I, I just missed a couple of seconds on the clip, but the, he's, he's reading a cartoon. That's the context of it. And he's explaining that. But I want you to watch this clip and, uh, and then we'll dig in a little bit more. Is superintendent of public schools. Smith Smith is an applicant for a teaching position teaching first grade. After a battery of tests and a series of interviews, Mr. Brown says to Ms. Smith, I'm awfully sorry, Ms. Smith, but we cannot use you. Going over your application, I have discovered that you have only two years teaching experience. And we prefer a person in our system who has been teaching at least five years. Then I discovered that you are only a year out of your school of education, and we prefer a person who has at least a master's degree. So I'm very sorry, but we cannot use you. Then your eye shifts to the second frame. Now Mr. Brown is the Sunday school superintendent. Miss Smith is someone he's trying to convince ought to teach in the junior high department. She is resisting. Mr. Brown, I haven't been a Christian very long, and I really don't know very much about the Bible. Oh, he said, that's perfectly all right. Finest way to learn the Bible is to teach it. She says, yes, but I really have had no experience whatever teaching junior high pupils. He says, don't let that bother you. All we're looking for is a willing heart. Ladies and gentlemen, this is more than a cartoon. It's a commentary on our low level of thinking concerning the teaching of the word of God. If you're going to teach the two and two are four, you may need a master's degree in many areas of our country. If you're going to teach a child to say, I don't know anything, instead of I don't know nothing, you need five years' teaching experience. But to teach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, anything is good enough for God. Teaching frequently degenerates into a ministry of mediocrity. What a contrast with the portrait of teaching in the word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul gives us a refreshing insight in terms of the impact of teaching. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. 
Paul says, I received the body of truth by revelation. And Timothy, I have communicated that to you, and you are simply one of many into whose life I have built. Now I'm charging you to take that which I have built into your life and make a deposit of it in the life of a group of faithful or reliable individuals, teaching them in such a way that they will be equipped to teach others. The implication being, who will teach others? Who will teach others? You see, it's not a ministry of mediocrity. It's a ministry of multiplication. And there's not a person alive who is fully appraised of the potential and the impact. Howard Hendricks is right. And I also would maybe widen that to say it this, that also refers to disciple-making within the church. See, I, I think the challenge is too often the church here in the United States has settled for a level of mediocrity. But folks, Jesus was very intentional in training his disciples. He was training them more than just knowing about the scriptures of the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. It was more than just memorizing scripture, attending a Bible study. See, I think that's our challenge. We equate disciple, disciple training as just learning only. But folks, Jesus sent them out into the waysides, into the community. He sends them out by two and he sends them out without anything. Or is it nothing? One or the other. But a walking stick. Let me give you some, what I believe are some of the things that he was doing here with his disciples in his training. If you follow along in the notes there, letter A. He wanted them to learn how to trust him and his father. No food, no money, no clothes. He was telling them, I will provide for you. Trust that my loving Father will give you what you need. It was a lesson in trust and faith. Let her be there another one. He wanted them to believe and experience Philippians 4.13. Let me read that for you. I don't have it, but I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, he, they had just watched him cast out a whole legion of demons. And he sends them out and says, guys, you now have the power to do this. You now have the resources. I'm giving you the strength to do this. And the healing's on top of that. I'm going to show my power is sufficient for you as you go and as you make disciples. Another one, see there. I think he wanted them to grow in spiritual wisdom by interacting with the world. See, I think the challenge, we think of disciple-making in the church and we think about Bible studies, but here's the tension. Sometimes I think we need to stop the Bible studies and actually just go out and use what the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures to the situations in life and start meeting other people outside the context of the church. Now, are Bible studies bad? No, we learn about who God is. But there's some way there has to be an application of those studies. See, and that was what Jesus was doing here. He was giving them wisdom of how to handle people and deal with people. 
But I think there was a fourth piece in the training as well, letter D. He wanted them to experience opposition, persecution. This was getting them ready. See, there's going to be demons in this world. I'm going to be leaving you after a while. I'm going to leave this world, and you're going to be left alone. And so, and guess what, guys? More persecution is coming to you. You know, go knock on a door. They slam the door in your face. Move on to somebody else. But see, I think Howard Hendricks is so right and on the money here because many Christians and churches are way too casual. It's too easy. You know, training, we go, it's optional. If it fit, or maybe it's if it fits my schedule. See, one of the functions, folks, of the church is to help make disciples who disciple. And can remind you that sending these guys out, there was a cost to it, to becoming a disciple as well. They didn't take vacation time. There was no vacation time. So it wasn't about convenience. They actually had to give up their fishing or at least long periods of time. And they, but they gave it up to be trained by Jesus. You see, discipleship isn't about convenience. See, people want training and learning is optional. And, and you, you wonder why the church has kind of lost its effectiveness here in the United States. There's a, more churches are closing their doors than ever before. Now, I recognize we, we live in a far more complex world, a busy world. Is it simple? And the answer is no. But I think the starting point when you think of, of becoming more effective disciples is for each of us to stop and go bow in front of Jesus and ask, Jesus, what do you want from me in this area, in my life? Are we learning to become men and women who are equipped, are effective in passing it on to other people that are entering our lives. Uh, by the way, guys, we have a, a new series that we have access to, and we can just put it on a little thumb drive for you. It's called Men's 33. It's a new one that um, Men's Fraternity put out here a year or so ago. And, but it's, a, it's an opportunity for training for men. But see, I think we need to pause and ask Jesus, what are the things that you are wanting for, from us about disciple-making? Becoming a person who is helping another person walk toward Jesus and then that, that person would turn around and help somebody else. Now, I, I do believe this. I believe our church leadership wants us to be more effective in making disciples. And, and I think... The vast majority of people here truly want to serve Christ. I really believe that. But I also believe this, that Jesus wants us as a body of Christ to be more effective. To not settle for mediocrity. Or it's good enough. Or we have a nice church, so it's good enough. See, Jesus wants the church to become a group of people that loves each other. Uh, on the, in the foyer there, have you looked at those words that are painted on the wall? I did this a couple weeks ago. That first one, belonging. Do we belong? Are, are we coming to a place where we care so much about each other that the world, other people, look at our love relationship and they go, Jesus is real. 
See, that's the call on us as a church and, and families as well. Are we, are we looking at that second uh, B out there? Believing. Are, are we believing God? Believing his word? Are we trusting that God wants to take us and use us and not become average followers of Christ? He wants us to be equipped for ministry. That third B in the, in the foyer there, to become to become like Jesus, becoming. Transform so people see Jesus in us. And, and that should be both in the church, but even outside the church as well. And he wants us to be so in love with Christ that we're responding out of joy, out of serving him, just because we want to do it. And that's where he wants us to go. And that fourth be on the wall, I don't know if you've seen that, bring, become bringing the idea that we're bringing the gospel to the world, we're bringing others to Christ in maturity. See that Paul, Jesus has a purpose here. He's looking to equip these men for a greater purpose. And folks, we live as a church here for a greater purpose than just to gather here just on Sunday morning. Matter of fact, let me challenge you with one thing I gave to the elders here on Tuesday night. I shared with them four categories to think in as we consider the church, but th these would also apply for every individual and every family here as well. Here's the four categories. 90 days, 18 months, 3 to 5 years, or 10 to 20 years. And here's how it goes. When you think about how you live your life, what you focus on, what are your, the decisions that are happening right now, is the bulk of those concerning 90 days? Are any of those decisions based on 18 months or three and a half years, three to five years, or even 10 to 20 Think of your decisions, the way you're living life right now. Is everything in the immediate? It's 90 days or maybe it's 30 days. Um, I asked a guy a couple weeks ago, uh, just doing some work in family stuff, and I said, do you consider, what's the life when you think of your children, your marriage, your family? He's not here. He's not a part of our church. And he said, 90 days. It's the way he lived his life. But what about 18 months from now? Do you ever consider what a year and a half needs to look like in your life in terms of a parent, an individual? And this is where I was challenging the elders. How about for us as a church? You think of a marriage, your family. This is where you're at now. What do you want it to look like a year and a half from now? And then, what decisions are you doing now to get to that place of a year and a half out? Are you considering that? But think of three to five years. Parents, can I go after you? When you look at your children, what, what's your vision for three to five years down the line? What do you want for them? On the maturity line... How far do you want them to be moving three to five years down the line? So, for example, if you have somebody that's 15 in your family or 16 or whatever, what does 18 and 21 look like? 
What decisions are you doing right now that's making a difference for three to five years down the road? And then you look at 10 to 20. You're talking about another, almost another generation. See, what's your vision for a future generation? What are the things you're doing now to contribute toward 10 to 20 years down the road? As I was pondering this a couple weeks ago, one of my goals, personal goals, is, you know, I got a bunch of grandkids, but one of them is that I want to, I would really love the privilege of, of doing the ceremony for one of my grandkids. I really do. It would be so cool, you know, 75, 70, 75, to stand up and, and, and marry and, and do the wedding for one of my granddaughters or grandsons. But then he has to ask the question, what am I doing now that I'm going to earn the respect to a point and have a deep enough relationship with them where they actually might consider me to do that? See, it won't start, it's not going to start 10 to 20 years down the road. It's going to start decisions now that I have to work on in order to get to that place at some point of impacting my, my children in the future, grandchildren in the future. But see, these categories also apply, and this is where I was going with the elders, to the church. What, are, we, are we living in the immediate? Are, are we, do we have a vision for 18 months? Do we have a vision for three to five years? Do we have a vision for 10 to 20 years when many, some of us here, won't, ever, won't be around? We could be dead. Do we have a vision for that? 20 years down the road. But let me connect this back to Jesus. You understand, Jesus had that kind of thinking. 18 months. He knew his time was coming. A year or so, the resurrection. And getting his disciples ready for 18 months when he was going to be ascend, taken up into heaven. He was going to get them ready for that point. How were they going to react? What, how, what kind of disciples were they going to be when he is gone? But even farther than that, I think he, Jesus had a three to five year view as well in his training. Because you understand that was the beginning point of the launching of this church. All of a sudden, persecution comes into Jerusalem and three to five years, they are scattering all over the area. Jesus was preparing them. He was training them to leave and start a movement of, of church and gr churches growing, people, new Christians coming, understanding who this Jesus is. He was getting them ready. The initial wave of three to five years would have been persecution coming from the Roman government and getting worse for a while. But catch this, I think Jesus had a vision for way beyond that. Because as he looked at his disciples, he was going, disciples, it's not just three to five years. Are you going to train other men that when you, most of them were martyred, when you leave this earth, is there going to be somebody behind that will continue the movement of the church growing, of the kingdom of God expanding? See, Jesus was giving them a picture of far more than just the immediate Guys, you're going to get ready. I'm going to get you ready because the church is going to grow. And folks, do you realize because of the vision of Christ, we're here today, 2,000 years later. Disciple-making, disciple-making. The church grows. New churches are planted. 
Let me close by this. I want to just read. I thought I had it on the screen, but I don't think I have that. But listen to 2 Timothy 2.2, what Howard Hendricks quoted. And he say, could this be my life? More and more and more. And what do I need to be able to do this? In my family, with my friends. He writes to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. You could put women in there. Who will be able to teach others also. Do you catch what Paul was doing? As God interrupted Paul's life, he goes, I'm going to be used by God. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And I'm going to train men and women who are going to turn around and they're going to train other men and women and they're going to turn around and train other men and women. And the kingdom grows and expands. Folks, I, I hope that our church here is used by God to change the spiritual landscape of this community. That's my prayer. That God would use us, that we'd be willing to get in the game of discipleship, and as God uses this place and this community of believers, that we would impact people all over the place in the Grand Rapids area and surrounding. See, God wants us, he wants to equip us for making a difference in the kingdom of God. Let's stand and pray.